Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am on the line with Jeremy Howard. Jeremy is founder and researcher with Fast AI. Jeremy, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you very much. Uh, it is great to finally get you on the show. As you know, uh, the Twimmel community, uh, in particular, uh, our meetup has really been enjoying the uh, Deep Learning for Coders course. We uh, brought a group of folks through that course earlier this summer and spun up a, a second group to work on that course. Um, and then you've recently announced the machine learning course, and we've got a group starting soon that we'll be wow. working on that course together. Uh, so we are big fans of Fast AI. Um, the interview I did with Rachel, that was Twimble Talk 138 back in May, remains one of the most popular ones, uh, shows to date. So I am super excited. Sam, the pleasure's all mine. And, and, and let me just say uh, thank you so much for everything that you're doing for the uh, machine learning and AI community. And, uh, and thanks so much for... Um, spending time looking at our little course. I, I'm really grateful. Uh, it is a, a great course, and we'll jump into uh, all the reasons why, I am sure. But uh, before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about your background. Uh, mm -hmm. So you've been former president and chief scientist at Kaggle. You founded several startups in this space. You're a published researcher, as well as on the faculty at USF. Uh, and you're unabashedly PhD-less. That's um, true. <laughs> Unlike Rachel, who is abashedly PhD'd or something. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I want to start out by talking about, uh, you know, I want to give you a chance to, to more fully kind of walk folks through your, your background, but also, you know, maybe end up at the, you know, the, the PhD, I think, has come to, you know, this is a... a, a uh, space uh, where the PhD carries a lot of weight, and I'm curious your your thoughts on kind of navigating this space and doing all that you've done without one, and what it says to you know other folks that want to participate in the space. Yeah, I mean, I I understand where the question's coming from, Sam, because it's definitely always been intimidating and terrifying for me doing what I'm doing without an academic background, and I can't begin to tell you how deeply surprised I was when I discovered I was actually pretty good at machine learning because uh, I had I, no literally I had no idea like you have to realize I I mean so to answer your question I started um, my career when I was 18 at a at a strategy corporate strategy company called McKinsey and Company um, I I got a degree in a Bachelor of Arts in philosophy but I didn't turn up to any lectures because I was working full-time. So I just turned up to exams. So I, I really, even though in theory I have a degree, I, I haven't really studied anything much in a formal way. Um, so I'm kind of very unfamiliar with the university system and the academic system overall. And so I spent, um, you know, eight years in corporate strategy and then 10 years running a couple of companies, um, which were somewhat related to machine learning, but one of them was a uh, email provider called Fastmail, which is still pretty popular. And, you know, the machine learning I did there was like, you know, trying to 
improve the spam detector mainly. Um, and then the other one was an insurance pricing company called Optimal Decisions, which was more about operations research and optimization and simulation than it was about predictive modeling. Um, so at the end of all that, uh, when I entered my first Kaggle competition because I wanted to like finally learn to do machine learning properly and I won it, I was just like, that can't be right because I knew that uh, it was an econometrics um, competition and there was a lot of PhDs and professors in econometrics in the competition and I just thought, that's really weird that some um, kind of self-taught hack, you know, business guy could possibly beat these guys at predicting time series. I just thought that was, um, yeah, deeply weird and surprising and and very pleasing. I mean, it was the start of a new career for me because when you find out you're good at something, you kind of, you know, at least in my case, I went all in on trying to be as good at it as, as I could be. I didn't realize that your uh, your career at Kaggle began with competing in a competition. Yeah. So at that point, it was just Anthony Goldblum and he had, uh, you know, hired a contractor to kind of hack together a site based on his idea of uh, creating a um, competition platform. And yeah, I came across it because at the uh, I went to the uh, the R meetup in Melbourne, um, thinking that would be a good way to learn to do machine learning properly. And somebody there told me, oh, there's this a good way to learn machine learning would be to try one of these. Kaggle competitions. And so I, yeah, so I did, um, much to my surprise, you know, I won my first one and I think I also won my second one and I got to the top of the leaderboard. And so by the time the next meetup came along, uh, Anthony was actually at the meetup and somebody introduced me. And by that stage he knew who I was because I was the highest ranked Kaggler. And, um, and I ended up becoming the first investor in the company. And then I rewrote the whole platform from scratch uh, as a volunteer, uh, because it turned out it wasn't really going to be scalable enough to do what was needed to be done. And yeah, I ended up becoming an equal partner in the, in the company. Um, so that was, uh, yeah, that was a cool way to get involved. Oh, that's, that's pretty amazing. And people often kind of poo poo Kaggle competitions and you they know, do. with comments like, Oh, it's not really the real world. All the hard stuff do. is done for you. Uh, I imagine you these have are not a slightly people different who uh, in Kaggle competitions, though. These are right. people who, <laughs> these are people who have heard third hand, and it's uh, yeah. What's your take on that? A lot of the exercises in the deep learning for coders course are, hey, just go find a data set on Kaggle and do some stuff with it. So you, yeah. you know, obviously believe uh, pretty strongly in in that as a a way to learn. Yeah, I do. Um, you know, that's a great question, actually, because, you know, like with many of these um, troubling myths, there's just enough of an element of truth in it to make it sound believable, you know, which is like, obviously, there is a lot to building a data product or solving a data oriented problem that is not about creating a more predictive, predictive model. So, yes, that's true. But then, you know, taking that premise that the therefore competing in Kaggle competitions is a waste of time is is a totally ridiculous leap. Because um, actually, if you want to do a good job of your data product, having a 
predictive model that's good at predicting things is actually a pretty good, pretty important part of that. Uh, furthermore, um, uh, Bryman, uh, who developed the random forest, uh, amongst other things, had this fantastic uh, uh, two cultures of statistics uh, paper in which he talked about how incredibly powerful a good predictive model is as providing a platform for data interpretation, hmm. uh, for understanding your data. And that's one of the things that I spend a lot of time on on the new machine learning course. So if you're going to kick ass on a Kaggle competition, you need to understand the data really, really well. Um, and so if you're good at understanding data really, really well and building models that are very predictive, uh, and you also have to be really good at software engineering in a very practical way, because every idea you come up with, you have to be able to code it in a way that actually works correctly, and that's tested, um, and then you need to make sure it's maintainable because you're going to, you know, patch lots and things on top of each other over the three months of the competition. So realistically, um, if you can get a good result on a Kaggle competition, you have exercised many of the pieces necessary for machine learning in the real world. Um, the other pieces like productionizing that model, you know, that's a whole different skill which you can practice elsewhere or skills like, Figuring out what problem to solve, you know, and what constraints there are to solve that problem. I mean, that's kind of more of a management consulting corporate strategy kind of issue, which, again, there are resources for that. But, yeah, for the part that is really about machine learning, Kaggle competitions are a great exercise. You made an interesting comment in there that, you know, winning a, competi a Kaggle competition and building models in general is – very much about really understanding the the data um, and in the deep learning for coders part one course you know you you kind of my personal experience we kind of sailed through the the first three lessons uh, that were focused on building uh, object detectors and things like that and then we got to this really interesting set of lessons around uh Building using machine learning for more tabular data, mm -hmm. and the the promise of that is that uh, actually kind of the opposite of what you said. That you know previously, in order to really work with uh, you know traditional enterprisey data, uh, a data scientist really had to be a, a domain expert and understand those domains and the data sources very deeply. Uh, the impression a lot of us took from, you know, what we learned in applying deep learning to tabular data is that, you know, we didn't have to be as deeply ingrained in that particular field because the network would learn a lot of the patterns for us. Um, That's definitely How do you rec true. reconcile those two perspectives? Well, um, the first thing to note is there's a difference between getting a pretty good model and winning a Kaggle competition. And so winning a Kaggle competition, you actually have to do everything better than everybody else. Because if you don't, somebody else will do that thing better than you and will beat you. So, you know, Kaggle, it's definitely true that Kaggle solutions, like the top 10 Kaggle solutions, are going to be very over-engineered for practical purposes. But what they show you is kind of the the full menu of things which can improve your model. And you can kind of pull each one out one at a time to figure out how important each piece is. So doing some amount of feature engineering um, 
is almost always helpful and doing a lot is going to be necessary to actually winning a competition. Having said that, um, it's definitely true that deep learning allows us to do less feature engineering and still get as good results as we might have with a GBM or a random forest or something. And there's been some interesting uh, papers and talks from folks like Instacart and Pinterest who have switched from GBM-based methods in their companies. So Pinterest switched from GBM to um, deep learning, for example, for their homepage um, you know, kind of main homepage recommendation feed. And uh, they've talked about how doing that made their engineering process less complex because they didn't need to do as much feature engineering as they did before. Uh, the, um, the the architecture kind of did more of it for them. Um, so you generally, uh, you know, with, with deep learning, you don't have to bucketize your continuous variables, which some kinds of model require. You don't have to create interactions, which some kinds of model require. Um, you don't have to do special tri tricks to allow it to extrapolate uh, further, um, which you certainly need for any tree-based method. Um, so, yeah, I think both of those things are true at the same time. Mm. Yeah, certainly the the course uh, in our group created uh, a number of fans of the whole technique of entity embeddings. Uh, it was really oh, eye-opening. Yeah. yeah, very underappreciated. I mean, the idea that you can use a mixture of categorical and continuous variables kind of without thinking about it um, is great. And you can use them for time series. You can use them for tabular. You can use them for collaborative filtering. You can use them for text. I mean, they, they pop up everywhere. Mm -hmm. And actually, um, I'll be interested to see uh, your, your, your feedback when you when you try it. But the, the new FastAI version 1 library makes that like ridiculously easy. Like now you can basically create a model with a mixture of categorical and continuous variables in, you know, and train it in three or four lines of code. Because um, we're really trying to, yeah, make that that idea of entity embeddings be as natural to use as possible. Well, I appreciate you helping us get to talking about the new library, uh, <laughs> which you're going to be announcing tomorrow, uh, today for those who listen to the podcast, uh, the day it's released, because we're going to try and get this out tomorrow. Let's talk about the, the library. So FastAI as a company is focused on you know research, it's focused on software, it's focused on courses. We talked a little bit about uh, all of that with Rachel. Uh, this is really about the the software. Uh, yeah, and this is the long term vision of what Fast.ai is is doing. And uh, uh, I'm I'm a bit sloppy about this myself, but the, our company is Fast.ai, and the software is just Fast.ai. Ah. Um, <laughs> so Fast.ai, you know, is all about getting to a point where people can use deep learning to help them do whatever it is they're doing. Um, really easily and to allow anybody to do that we actually have to get to a point where you don't have to use code at all because only something like 0.1 percent of the global population knows how to code uh, so kind of the fast ai library is step one along that path to kind of mm -hmm. require less and less code to be able to do more and more things more and more reliably more and more quickly since you grounded us out on on terminology another area that's somewhat confusing is that you're 
announcing what you call the V1 version one of the fast AI library. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it uh, supersedes a previous version of the library that was also written in PyTorch, which itself supersedes a previous version of the library that was written in TensorFlow. Yeah. Uh, So when we talk about the the V1 library, we're talking about the new thing. Um, Yeah, so just to go back through that. So the the previous thing was version 0.7. Okay. And that never got a version one tag because I, I wrote it knowing that it was not going to be that particularly close to the final form of what we wanted. It was kind of something that I hacked together that was good enough for the needs of the initial PyTorch-based courses because, uh, as you well know, PyTorch is um, you know really not suitable on its own as a first library for deep learning because you have to write your own training loop and you have to do a lot of things yourself and it's you know pretty um it's an amazingly great library but it's kind of missing that uh keras style layer on top so we kind of built the amount we needed to get people going um but we uh yeah it, it, it was certainly not a you know really carefully integrated fully thought through library. So here we are, uh, you know, 18 months later, uh, we've rewritten the entire thing from scratch um, in a way which is explicitly designed to provide a long-term foundation for all the software we build from now on. And then before that was something that was, yeah, sat on top of Keras and TensorFlow. And I don't think we ever even called that a library or gave it a name. It was only a kind of bunch of little utilities that sat on top of Keras to smooth over some of the slightly rough edges. Um, so yeah, that was, that's been kind of the, the progression. And so it's really the first time where where we're saying, okay, you know what? This software is actually now, we think, pretty damn good. We're pretty damn proud of it. We think people should start using it for, you know, basically anybody who's trying to train neural nets. We think this is the best software out there for, for doing that. Uh, and specifically for kind of production use as opposed to education or rapid prototyping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, I know there are certainly Fortune 500 companies using FastAI 0.7, um, but you know, they're nearly entirely Fortune 500 companies where they have a lot of their technical staff who have done the courses and got introduced to it that way, and are kind of happy to dig into the source code as necessary to make it work the way they want it to. So yeah, now uh, this is, you know, we think this is totally ready for um, for everybody to use. It's also like a good time for it because it's, um, it's aligned with the PyTorch version one release. Um, I mean, we're a little bit ahead of them. So we're actually using the PyTorch version one um, pre-release um, now. And when the final release comes out, um, we'll be obviously... Uh, uh, supporting that. But um, PyTorch version one has done a lot of work on the productionization uh, story uh, with the integration of CAFE 2 and, uh, you know, the kind of full support of ONNX and stuff like that. So um, because any fast AI model is also a PyTorch model, you can use all of that new functionality to um, to serve your fast AI models directly. You made an interesting post about the methodology behind developing the new library that was actually somewhat controversial on the the Twimmel uh, Slack 
the if I remember the gist of it, it was that the library was built it's kind of built from the ground up relative to zero point seven and specifically built kind of using or around uh the Jupyter notebooks that mm. will eventually become part of the course or yeah. maybe the part two version of the part course. Like, yeah. Talk a little bit about that process. Yeah. Okay. So this is actually pretty fascinating. I'm glad you brought it up because it's not something I've had a chance to to write about yet. Um, so this will be the first kind of proper description of this. Um, here's what happened. Um, the first thing is uh, I just love working in Jupyter Notebooks. I am, you know, I've been coding for, gosh, you know, uh, well over 30 years. Um, but I, I just, uh, in, in many different languages, but I just write better code faster when I'm when I'm in a notebook. Um, and so I, 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 I like that, but it's, you know, writing stuff in a notebook is not something that's really been well suited to creating, you know, reusable modules in the past. So kind of that was issue number one. Issue number two is that um, we've got this kind of unique thing we do when there's an in-person course on where I make a big room available every day during the course. And I tell everybody, all the students, I'm going to be working in this room. If anybody else wants to work with me, you are most welcome to do so. Um, and so during the course, we have a whole bunch of um, fast AI students, you know, hanging out, working together. And um, and generally, I've got my work being projected onto a big screen so people can kind of watch. And one of the most common things I hear from the students is, gosh, I learned so much watching you test and refactor and build, which I can't, I don't get out of the the course, you know, like in the course, everything kind of just appears all done. And I think one of the things people surprise me is how much I screw things up. You know, I'm, I'm just constantly making mistakes and fixing them. And, you know, everything is a lot harder than people perhaps realize based on what they see in the course. So the question I often get is like, how can we learn to kind of develop software, you know, machine learning software, the way you're developing it? So what I did was I decided um, the next version of the software, version one of FastAI, which we're releasing today, I am going to build in notebooks where each stage I'm going to like I'm going to leave all the cells in there, so you can see every stage of that progression. So you can see what I built first, and then how I refactored it, and then what I checked it against, and so forth. So as a result, there's this series of I don't know something like 14 or 15 notebooks. Uh, which if you go through the whole thing, you end up writing the entire fast AI library yourself. Hmm. Wow. Uh, and so that... Uh, 14 notebooks. 14 notebooks. That, and that'll eventually be the the part two course, which uh, the current part two course is kind of taking you into the internals of the old library. So this is a new approach to doing that for the new library. Yeah. yeah. And in the process, you're going to have to learn about a lot of recent research results because um, as you're aware the you know the even the 0.7 and particularly 1.0 uh, integrates a lot of recent research results to kind of make them directly available so as you go through part two you're going to be like learning about um, you know what paper is this particular line of code based on and why is it done that way and and so forth so yeah you'll you'll both learn a lot about um, modern kind of cutting-edge deep learning research, but also about the pro process of building machine learning software. And so what we did, it's like really simple, but it worked really well, is from time to time as I was 
kind of building a notebook, I can create a function that I'd kind of think, okay, that's probably going to be useful to use again. So I just put a little comment at the top, and my comment was always uh, hash export. And any time I had a little thing running in the background that any time it saw a cell that said hash export, it would chuck it into a um, Python module. And so I could then build the next notebook on top of the previous notebook by simply importing the previous notebook's auto-generated module. Huh. And so then at the end of all that, we then went through a manual process of kind of figuring out like, okay, well, what have we ended up with here? And we kind of structured things into a careful, carefully decoupled set of independent modules, which ended up being fast AI and wrote all the documentation and so on and so forth. But, you know, it, it really, um, you can really see it, the, the final result is close to identical to what you'll see in those notebooks. One of the issues that was raised, and I think I, I raised questions along this line. Well, I'm sure I raised questions along this line as well in our Slack is, you know, that sounds like a very kind of organic way of coming up with the library um, that may not lend itself well to kind of the, the durability and, you know, well-architected APIs that yeah. you would want if you're going to be using this for a general purpose. Like, how do you... Yeah. That's a great question. So um, that's how I used to think too. And um, about uh, 20 years ago, I got maybe a bit less. I got super interested in test-driven development. And um, for those that aren't familiar with it, the kind of basic idea of test-driven development is you kind of write a bunch of tests. You make each one pass one at a time. Every time you find you've got some duplicate code, you refactor it. Uh, into a class or a function. You try to figure out what it is that class or function's doing based on that duplicate code and give it a name. And you keep on repeating this again and again and again. And um, I kind of just played around with it because a few people I respected thought it was great. I thought it sounded really weird. Um, and one of my key issues was what you just said, which is, well, at what point do you actually design a durable, thoughtful API? Um, much to my surprise, I discovered that this process of testing and refactoring naturally ended up just through having to refactor out these abstractions and then abstractions on top of those and then abstractions on top of those and carefully naming things. Um, yeah, like it, I ended up with better APIs than I'd ever written um, when I'd carefully designed them. And, you know, I should mention I've spent a lot of time designing APIs. I wrote a number of MVC modules. I was the Perl 6 chair for all the data functionality in Perl 6. So I like explicitly was writing RFCs for, for that API. Um, you know, I've written a lot of APIs in my time and I've discovered that this organic approach, I end up with better APIs. I end up with, I end up with no stuff in them which actually doesn't need to be there. So unnecessary complexity is entirely avoided because you only build what you need. Um, I end up with less kind of unnecessary and over-complex abstractions. Um, so I kind of end up with something that's that's concise and neat. And uh, I don't know, like when you when you try it out, see what you think. I am really, really proud of this API. Like we've, I found that we have almost identical four lines of code to build a NLP model versus a computer vision model versus a tabular model versus a collaborative filtering model. Um, you know, it's... Uh, it's been a. I found it a real pleasure to to work in, frankly. Definitely looking looking forward to that. Yeah, since you mentioned your work with Pearl, I will uh, admit that 
in working with the 0.7 version of the API, uh, at some point I grumbled in our Slack channel that, you know, some of the, uh, you know, the attribute and function names were seemed unnecessarily terse. And, you know, Jeremy mm-hmm. must have been a Perl developer in a former mm-hmm. life. And someone said, oh, yeah, he was actually a Perl committer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think it's fair to say also that some of them were unnecessarily terse. Uh, so, uh, we've actually changed from a rule of thumb of symbol parts should try to be three letters or less to kind of symbol parts should try to be five letters or less. And that's actually made a big difference to be able to say train rather than TRN and valid rather than VAL. Um, uh, it's actually worse than that, though. I'm, I'm not just a, a keen Perl programmer. I'm also a keen uh, kind of J and APL programmer where <laughs> everything is one symbol. Um, so we should expect like uh, deltas and upside down deltas and Greek letters yeah, creeping so in. Not quite, right? Because um, uh, I mean, I could talk about this for, for hours, but I'm, I'm just fascinated in notation. And my kind of hero here is uh, Kenneth Iverson, the Turing Award winner, who wrote the classic uh, Turing Award lecture, uh, Notation as a Tool for Thought. And mm. in it, he describes how good notation helps you you know, do good work, do good research, come up with new ideas, uh, implement things more quickly and easily. And good notation, as he defines it, is very, very different to what kind of pep Python looks like. Good notation is something where you, you know, your kind of eye um, can quickly look at one part of the screen and capture the gist of gist of what's going on. Uh, so it's about using vertical space really carefully. It's about kind of having common idioms be easily recognizable. Um, and so I would say to get to that point where you've got notation as a tool for thought, you kind of have to slightly give up on Python's goal of being immensely friendly even to the most new programmers and say, okay, no, I actually want people to invest a little bit of time learning this, uh, but the promise will be that if you do so, you will be immensely more productive as a result. So, you know, we definitely don't go anywhere near to the APL and J level of that <laughs> kind of premise. I don't but know. Nonetheless, it is it is the premise. Uh, I don't know of J, but APL was a language that I studied for a few weeks in my first like computer languages survey class at oh, yeah. school. Um, and I remember that those weird keyboards very well. <laughs> so J is kind of an ASCII version of that, uh, largely written by Kenneth Iverson's son, actually, because huh. uh, Kenneth Iverson wrote the original APL. But you've got to realize, like, APL goes back to, I mean, it was originally written as a mathematical notation, not as a programming language. And so, you know, it came out, that came out in the late 50s. The, the implementations came out in the early 60s. Uh, still today, many big and successful companies choose to use APL um, for their most important stuff, particularly, um, you know, big uh, hedge funds. So the fact that this is a notation that has survived many, many decades, longer than any other widely in use language today, I think it tells you a lot about how extraordinarily it was designed. And, And it's something everybody should study it at some point because it's, you know, you learn so much from seeing this totally independent uh, language evolution path. I did not realize it was still in in wide use. 
Um, oh yeah, absolutely. So uh, you know, maybe to, to digress a little bit from the uh, the library. Uh, you know, you've already mentioned a, a few papers, and one of the hallmarks uh, of the library is, you know, that you have identified these, in some cases, relatively obscure papers that have outsized results uh, in terms yeah. of training efficiency. I love doing that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, clear, clearly you do. The, the, the question, and maybe why it's a digression, is uh, – you know, how do you keep up with all of the stuff that's happening in the space? And, you know, to the extent that you're able to, to drop in these obscure references in both code and conversation? Mm. Um, Twitter, basically. Um, you know, the, the, the Twitter machine learning community is, is really terrific. And um, you can quickly get you know, become a part of it if you go to my Twitter page. So I am Jeremy P. Howard. If you go to my profile, you can click on my likes and you can immediately see, you know, who, what, who am I liking things from? And you'll see that there's just a long list of people posting about basically mainly about deep learning. Um, so you can start following the people you find interesting. And uh, it's just a really rich, highly technical community. I'd say the other thing I do is I explicitly look out for the stuff that other people are missing. So rather than kind of trying to say, oh, here's a really popular paper everybody's talking about, instead I kind of look out for like, oh, here's a extremely uh, good model somebody's built, but nobody's talking about this paper, because that's where I get to do something that other people aren't doing, so I get to kind of contribute more. And so I'm particularly interested in looking at, um, you know, I always read the winner, the winning blog posts from Kaggle competitions. I look at the, um, if you go to any, machine learning or deep learning workshop website, you'll generally find posted papers from the people that won that competition. They are an astonishing source of tricks, but those things never generally get published anywhere else. So, mm. and they're never kind of, they, they don't appear in search results. So you have to go and find them. But in like these workshops where people say, here's how I won, you know, this academic competition's object detection path, they'll generally say, you know, these are all the other papers we looked at. These are the things we tried. These are the things we worked. These are the things that didn't work. Um, so that's, that's a really great trick. Oh, that's an interesting hack to, to focus your efforts on papers where there's a competition uh, involved yeah. somewhere. Yeah, focus on stuff that works. And, you know, even that's much more controversial than it should be because there's this kind of view in the academic community that researchers don't really need to worry about, uh, you know, the latest and greatest tweaks, you know, uh, and techniques. Um, but the truth is, you know, people building deep learning models are doing it because they're trying to make something that's more accurate than somebody else's model or trains faster than somebody else's model. You know, we're not just doing it because of the mathematical purity of it or something. So, uh, you know, and furthermore, if you're claiming that your model, you know, your architecture, your training method, your optimizer is better than some other thing, you know, you have to compare it to that other thing. And if you don't know how to actually train a good modern model, then your experiments are pretty much meaningless anyway. So, you know, I think it's really important for practitioners to be familiar with, you know, in practice, how how are people actually training these most accurate and fastest models? Mm -hmm. uh, at the recent Deep Learning in DABA event in South Africa, Jeff Dean 
made a comment about how, you know, one of his secrets to success, if you will, is <clears throat> as opposed to going deep on fewer papers, going shallower on a, you know, many more uh, papers, uh, yeah. he thinks is a, a preferred approach. Uh, you know, do you ascribe to something similar or do you have other kind of, you know, hacks for learning, yeah. keeping up? I think that's basically right. I mean, like when you think about it, um, if you don't use that approach, then, you know, you're, you know, think of like your, your knowledge is a weighted average of the kind of the inputs you're putting into it. Right. And so anything that you don't read or look at gets a weight of zero. So you can't like, you know, it's kind of easy to pretend like, oh, I didn't look at it, so it doesn't count. But but no, you know, you've chosen <laughs> to put 98% there and 2% there and 0% on these other thousand things. So yeah, I think it's definitely worth going broad. But I'd also say like, I look out for the themes, you know. And uh, so for me, one of the, you know, the most important theme at the moment is transfer learning beats everything all the time. Um, and almost nobody's really doing you know, not not totally nobody, but almost nobody's actually doing research about transfer learning. Um, most papers don't actually apply their techniques to transfer learning. So, you know, here, for me, here's a theme, right? So every time I see anything that I think, oh, that, you know, what if you added transfer learning to that? Or, you know, what if I use that transfer learning technique in this different field that doesn't currently use transfer learning? So like our um, ULM fit model, which is the state of the art for, Text classification, um, pretty much everywhere it's been looked at, um, now in multiple languages. Um, that was just me saying, how come people never use transfer learning properly in NLP? You know, I should try it. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like following that 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 theme. Uh, and I won't go deeper on that because I do have a conversation with Sebastian scheduled to oh, uh, dig into that sometime soon. Oh, good. Maybe back to the, the, the library and the course, I've heard some, I don't know if they're rumors, you know, there, some something that you wrote gave folks the impression that the new part one course is kind of turning away from this top-down approach and taking more of a bottom-up approach. Uh, is that true? And before you answer that, I will say that, you know, so we did these weekly study group uh sessions, kind of like virtual uh, sessions where we all got online and, and talked about, you know, what we were learning and the course. And we spent a ton of time almost every week talking about top down and just getting used to it. <laughs> it's yeah. very different from the way uh, folks learn, uh, but very effective at kind of getting you pulled in quickly. Yeah. I mean, it depends a lot on your background, right? I mean, um, you know, in a lot of kind of more MBA style stuff, it's often, it is often a lot more top down, a lot of kind of executive education is a lot more top down, um, you know, but most people who are kind of coding um, have come from more of a, yeah, maybe come from more of a computer science uh, academic background, which is very bottom up. Um, so, um, uh, no, we're not stepping away from the top down approach at all, because um uh, it's, you know, all, all of the uh, educational research I've studied, uh, which is a lot, uh, shows that most, the, by far the majority of people learn better um, with the top-down approach, um, even though it requires, to some extent, unlearning how to learn based on the bottom-up approach that we kind of get used to from school and university. I will say the uh, the machine learning course, the introduction to machine learning course, is... Um, 
It's it's still pretty top down. Like uh, lesson one, you know, the first cell is here's a random forest. We've trained it, and here's the result. Um, and then we kind of gradually dig into like how do we interpret that result and how do we actually build that tree. And by kind of lesson seven, we write our own random forest from scratch in pure Python. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I think because the people I was originally doing that course for were master's students, um, I possibly was a little more, I don't know, go a little bit deeper, a little bit earlier um, so that they didn't get too uncomfortable with the with the kind of change of style. I'm looking for the details here since you mentioned that machine learning course. Uh, yeah. The course has been kind of, you know, it's been around in a pre-release state, I guess, yeah. for quite some time. Uh, but since it's been formally released, we've got a study group uh, that some folks in the community are organizing that will be starting uh, very soon. In fact, lesson one uh, is going to be on Sunday, October 7th at uh, 3 o'clock GMT. And they're going to continue that for you know 12 weeks on Sundays at that Great. time. Great. Uh, well, let me encourage people to, to get into that, even if uh, even for folks who haven't done the deep learning course yet like you can do the two in 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 either order they both are designed to work well together but it's definitely true that people who study with a group uh on average have more effective learning outcomes and more importantly tend to stick with it for longer uh, than people who study independently uh so yeah i i think that sounds like a fantastic initiative and i hope people listening um uh join in yeah, well, we had a great group that did the deep learning uh, part one course together this summer. And in fact, uh, most of the, you know, this course and the uh, we've got another session of the, the deep learning course that's going now. I'll, I'll elaborate on that in a second. But these are all kind of being run by folks that came together to do this deep learning course together. Uh, so it's been it's been awesome for us. Yeah. On that deep learning course, the so we had a group that uh, started three three weeks ago. I think they've had three sessions. Uh, a second group on the the deep learning for coders part one course. We made some tweaks to how we did it. The first time we did it, we did a, we were planning for a weekly pace. Uh, we held that through about the fourth lesson, and then we went uh -huh. to biweekly because it gets a lot harder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so this time they started doing a, a biweekly pace all the way through. But one of the things that threw a little bit of a wrench in our plan, a good wrench, uh, is that you announced that for the new course, which is going to be starting at, towards the end of October, uh, although we, we noted that the notebooks haven't been written yet. Um, no. or, <laughs> yeah, I should probably do that. <laughs> Uh, but for this for this new course, you know, previously that you know the options for taking this course were, you could take it in person and you offered a bunch of different types of scholarships, uh, or apply to take it remotely uh, during kind of the live, uh, you know, course time, or you know wait a few months and catch it via video. But you just announced uh, with some pretty interesting kind of background commentary uh, that you've decided to make the remote course available to anyone who wants to sign up for it. Yeah, as long as, you know, the only thing I ask is that you follow along live, which means if you're in a annoying time zone for our 
uh, evening US time classes that you get up and do it anyway. Because I, I, I want people involved to be contributing to the real time, you know, chat during the course. Um, but, uh, you know, other than that request, uh, yeah, it's, it's open to anybody who has at least a, a year of coding experience. Um, and uh, definitely looking forward to seeing how this uh, little experiment works out. I think it's going to be really cool. Yeah, that was one of the questions that folks had was whether the for folks that are in kind of off time zones, whether the videos would be made available any sooner so that they could, uh, you know, participate via forums and groups like ours, but watch the videos at a slightly more convenient time. I mean, it's I mean, I, I, I can't technically stop anybody from doing that, I guess, because I mean, it's on YouTube live and the videos appear on YouTube live. Um, but I would certainly much prefer people to to actually be there during the class because that's where we're having the the discussion you can ask me questions you know while the lesson's going on uh you know i I think it that's what makes it a really rich and interesting experience we started this course uh a second session of the part one course uh you, you threw this this uh really a great wrench in our plan. And so what we've decided to, to do is we'll kind of continue for the the part one course, the first couple of lessons. Uh, but as soon as that, uh, the new course starts, which I think you said was the 22nd of October, if that date holds, um, we will be kind of switching gears and working on the, the new course, the new library, uh, et cetera. And everyone's really excited about that. And people do need to sign up to participate in Fast AI Live, so I'm sure you can provide the link there that they can do that with. Uh, that's right. So we'll include that in the show notes, and then the sign up uh, for the the meetup and for our study groups uh, that'll be at twimlai.com/meetup. Uh, so maybe kind of jumping back to the library, one of the things that uh, you are kind of including in your announcement about the new library is some benchmarking that you did relative to uh, the Kiris library. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what you showed? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'd, I'd love for people to help do more benchmarking. I only had time to quickly throw something together. And I I will say it's been a while since I really used Keras, so I tried to find documentation on best practices, but um, there actually is, I couldn't find anything post-2016 in terms of official, here's how to do transfer learning in Keras. So so it's possible that my Keras approach is not as optimal as it could be. But basically, yeah, I tried to use the uh, classic Kaggle dogs versus cats data set um, to uh, transfer learner ResNet 34 um, and just uh, tracked how many lines of code it took. And I tried to optimize my Keras lines of code as best as I could. Um, how long it took to train and what accuracy I could get. Um, and uh, yeah, I was very pleased to find that the fast AI library code was something like a fifth as many lines and uh, was quite a bit faster and quite a bit more accurate, which is, yeah, it's really all about the little, um, you know, all the stuff we curate, both, uh, both in terms of papers that we incorporate into the defaults and uh, also some unpublished research, uh, which we hope to publish later this year, um, around uh, ways to do this kind of uh, training better. Uh, one of the things that I did notice about the new library is the code to do fine-tuning got very compact. 
um, yeah. relative to the to the yeah. the zero point seven. Can you maybe you know talk a little bit about that and, and more broadly, like the big the differences that folks you know should expect to see when they yeah. start working with the new library? So you know, Pearl. Um, since we've talked about Pearl, has uh, Larry Wall, who, who wrote it, has this motto, which is make the easy things easy and make the hard things possible. Um, and so uh, to me, it's not just about making the easy things easy, but make the important things easy. And there's nothing more important than transfer learning. So, yeah, we tried very, very hard to make it uh, uh, trans, you know, basically transfer learning is kind of the thing you get automatically and for free so if you create a model by default you'll get some pre-trained weights and by default you'll get something that is uh, uh, set up for discriminative fine-tuning and set up for you know layer freezing and you know all the stuff you need uh, that you'll know from the course if you've done it yeah but then you know the nice thing is that all of the power of PyTorch we very intentionally make as close to the surface as possible. So, for example, you know, we integrate very closely with PyTorch and we use a lot of PyTorch APIs directly. So, for example, a fast AI data set um, is a PyTorch data set. Uh, the fast AI data loader is a wrapper for the PyTorch data loader. And in our docs, which actually we should talk about our docs a bit because it's one of the things I'm most proud of, but in our docs, everywhere that we are using a PyTorch object, you'll see that there is actually a hyperlink directly to the PyTorch documentation for that class or function. So, um, you know, the two libraries are really nicely integrated. Oh, that's that's awesome. I'd love to, to hear you talk a little bit about the docs. Uh, with the 0.7 library, for the most part, the code was, was the docs. Yeah, um, there was and, no docs. And in fact, someone from, our, from the Toonwell community, uh, Kai, contributed some docs and uh, was told, well, you know, hold off on this because we're going to do better. So what have you done with the, the version one library? Well, you won't be shocked to hear this, but the entire set of documentation is written as Jupyter Notebooks. Oh, nice. Um, and so that means that every page in the documentation, you can actually run it in your own, you know, Jupyter Notebook and see the experiments. So that all of the documentation is designed to be uh, – a very, you know, it, it, every every module starts with an overview of like, hey, here's some code you can run right now to, you know, build this kind of model or to do this kind of data augmentation. Um, we wrote our entire entire kind of computer vision library from scratch in PyTorch, a full new set of transformations. Every transformation, therefore, is documented as you know a line of code in the in the docs that actually, you know, prints out examples of that data augmentation, shows you the pictures. So then what we've written is we've written a whole new documentation framework, um, which takes those docs and turns them into a, um, into a website. And that website, for example, it does things like any, any, any place you've used back ticks to kind of, you know, say, Hey, this is, this is code, this is a symbol, it will automatically try and find anything in that code that represents a PyTorch or FastAI class or function or object will automatically generate a hyperlink to that. So you can basically write, you know, standard markdown cells, uh, you can standard code cells, inputs, outputs, pictures, everything will then uh, automatically generate this uh fully hyperlinked table of contents, searchable documentation. Um, 
with uh, you know embedded pictures and all that kind of thing. Uh, and then yeah, you can go and try it out yourself by actually loading up that that notebook locally and trying it out. So I, I think it's as far as I know, it's the first time anything like this has been done, and I think it's going to be super helpful for this kind of thing we say to people, which is, hey, you should be experimenting, you should be running code, you should be trying things out. So now all of the documentation, you know, is stuff that you can try out as experiments. Oh, that sounds that sounds tremendous. Um, mm -hmm. The I'm not aware of any. I've never seen uh, code distributed as Jupyter notebooks. Um, that does sound very cool. Someone mentioned that you tweeted something about some extensions to Jupiter that you were That'll creating. That. Yep. Is that what that's referring to? Yeah, they're not actually extensions. It's a it's a it's a framework of um, it's a bit like a Sphinx if you've ever used Sphinx. It's kind of Sphinx on steroids, you know, but for notebooks. So basically, something where you feed in Jupyter notebooks and it spits out a a nice doc documentation website for you. Hmm. You know, one of the things that comes up occasionally is you know, folks that want to develop in Jupyter Notebooks and then productize, productionalize that code. Are, are you using techniques in, in, in this process that could be uh, also used to take a Jupyter Notebook and, you know, maybe identify parts that are annotated as being, you know, the, kind of the export uh, thing yep. that you're referring to and then yep. put those into a production module? Yep, absolutely. So, you know, as we go through part two, which I guess will be kind of first and second quarters of 2019, that's kind of what we'll be doing is we'll be seeing how to how to go through that process. You know, for me, um, I like automating things the right amount, which is like not too much and not too little. Uh, so for me, this kind of um, exporting cells is a great way to kind of gradually build up much of the API that you want, but then the piece where it's like, okay, let's create a really nicely designed decoupled set of modules with clear dependency paths and all that kind of stuff. That's something I did, um, uh, well, actually Sylvan and I did together, you know, manually and carefully. Uh, so I'm not really into kind of necessarily directly turning a Jupyter notebook into a module, but we certainly got some, yeah, use some simple tools to, to help us um, semi-automate that process. Okay. Uh, what are some other highlights that folks that are familiar with the 0.7, mod, uh, 0.7 library should expect to see or should be on a lookout for with version one? Yeah, so um, this new data augmentation slash computer vision library is something which you should definitely check out um, because it's uh, it's actually something which the, the PyTorch team helped make sure that PyTorch was explicitly performance accelerated for exactly the things we needed for it. So it's very fast and it actually ends up with much higher quality outputs than any existing uh, data augmentation library. Because normally if you do like a rotate and then a zoom, for example, it basically interpolates on top of interpolation and you end up with these kind of fuzzier and fuzzier images. Um, whereas we use an approach which actually keeps all of the sharpness of the image throughout the process. Um, we also have some, uh, this allows us to um, actually incorporate as default some kinds of transformation which pretty much nobody else is using, particularly um, perspective warping, which is a really important transformation in practice, um, but it really requires this 
special kind of library to make it work effectively. So I'd say definitely check out the computer vision transformation library we've built. I'd also say have a look at the uh, really good support for NLP transfer learning. Um, quite a few of the community on the um, fast AI forums have been um, trying out uh, the ULM fit techniques, so basically transfer learning for NLP in non-English languages. And in the last week or two, I've uh, heard from uh, two Polish uh, students that they just won the Polish uh, main Polish academic competition. Um, somebody else has just gone the st got the state of the art for German. Uh, and then a few months ago, somebody got the state of the art for Thai. And like in the German example, uh, the, 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 the chap on the forum basically said, hey, I I tried it. I trained it for 20 minutes. The first thing that popped out was the immediate state of the art for German. <laughs> so, you know, for, for NLP, um, you that's can basically incredible. do stuff with this library that's you will get better results than anybody's published before, you know, kind of trivially. And we actually uh, include, uh, if you look in the examples directory of the repo, just click on the text example. That'll actually show you how to do it end to end. Um, there's certainly, you know, the um, very much easier support for tabular data sets that's there is definitely worth checking out. It It's not that it's doing anything that you couldn't do with 0.7, but it's now super, super easy. Yeah, and I think also, like, just check out the documentation framework because we do plan to extract that out into a separate independent project at some time soon-ish. Uh, and, um, you know, I'd love to see more people trying to build... Um, Jupyter-based documentation systems, because I think it's uh, it's really helpful, you know, to your users to be able to say, hey, all of the documentation is code that you can run yourself right now and try it out. So the the current library is very much focused on uh, supervised learning, and as we've discussed, transfer learning. Uh, do you see the library moving into? Uh, models like reinforcement learning or unsupervised learning? Um, reinforcement learning, no, um, at least not in the short to medium term. Um, I, uh, I'm still unconvinced that we really know what we're doing as a community when it comes to reinforcement learning. The good results we're seeing are largely because of, um, you know, hacks that basically involve throwing ridiculous amounts of hardware at a problem. Um, so, uh, I still want to spend some time doing some deep research into reinforcement learning to try and find ways to make it work better on smaller amounts of resources and on kind of more practical problems. You know, not many people need to win Dota or Go. Um, um, unsupervised learning, um, definitely kind of. I don't really believe that there's such a thing as unsupervised learning, but I do believe very much in what Jan LeCun calls self-supervised learning, which is coming up with a supervised learning model which doesn't require explicit labels. And so, for example, uh, ULM fit is um, entirely based on uh, something called a language model. A language model is just a model which predicts the next word in a piece of text. So you don't need any labels, you just need some text, and you can build a model that tries to predict the next word after every sequence. So that's a self-supervised model because it uses the input data itself to generate labels. So uh, I'm very keen to continue to provide you know, richer and richer and uh, more and more varied uh, self-supervised learning support because that allows you to 
to do transfer learning, even in situations where you may not have um, um, explicit labels. The the idea of self-supervised learning, as you described it, is related to uh, another recurring theme that comes up from time to time on the podcast, and that is incorporating uh, model-based approaches into deep learning models, like physics-based approaches or other, depending on the domain. Yeah. Is that something that you uh, are interested in? You're, you're seeing, and so. do you see it? How do you see it working with the, the library? Oh, yeah. So, very much so. Uh, it's something I'm really enthusiastic about. I mean, a, a great example of a model-based approach is the convolutional neural network. So, if you start out with the observation that your data has um, uh, is auto-correlated along some dimensions, uh, so, for example, in an image, one pixel tends to be similar to the pixel above it and to the left of it and to the right of it and below it, so you've got two-dimensional autocorrelation. And so a convolution is an operation explicitly architected to allow it to be easier to identify those kind of autocorrelated patterns. So like a CNN is a great example of a kind of model-based or model-inspired architecture. Then there's, you know, more recently, there's been a lot of, uh, maybe not a lot, quite a few uh, good examples of places where domain experts have come up with uh, kind of tweaks to an architecture which allow it to, you know, uh, more easily represent the kinds of things that are co most common in that domain. So, for example, uh, there was a couple of papers, one of which was by uh, Sonda Dielemann, talking about group convolutions, which is basically saying, hey, if you're doing something like um, pathology images uh, or satellite images, which are rotation invariant, uh, here is an architecture that is explicitly designed so that rotation invariance is built into the very end architecture. Um, I've seen similar things in models for physics, where the kind of basic invariances or constraints of what would be required in those physics modules are, models are built into the architecture. So with FastAI, we've tried to make that kind of thing pretty easy to add um, because there's this idea of a custom head. Um, you can very easily create a, you know, a custom head for your architecture, which might contain some of those ideas. Uh, or you can create a custom module, a custom uh, NN.module, you know, a PyTorch model, um, and pass that directly to a fast AI learner. And we've kind of provided lots of hooks for you to make it easy to add all the additional fast AI features into your model. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, we've, you know, tried to support what we can there and maybe. Um, People who are interested in specific domains that already have some um, kind of model-inspired architectures, hopefully we'll be able to start contributing some of their um, their approaches. Maybe to start to, to wrap things up, I hear you're writing a book on machine learning. What's that going to cover? Okay, so we've got two books coming up. Uh, one is a book with Professor Terence Parr about machine learning. Uh, the first few chapters are available uh, in an early draft form online, and it's basically... Uh, inspired by the course. So Terence Parr, some of your listeners may recognize the name. He's a pretty famous computer scientist who built the Antler parser generator, which I guess is kind of the most widely used parser generator around. And he spent decades becoming, I'd say, the world's leading expert, or certainly one of them in parser generators. And he's now turning his attention to machine learning. And he um, he's a colleague here at the University of San Francisco. He actually sat in on my machine learning course when I taught it and said like, oh, I like that so much. I think we should write a book based on it. So yeah, so we're doing that. And uh, everything Terence does, he does 
exceptionally deeply and exceptionally well. Uh, so if you check out some of the early material, you will see there's a lot of beautiful visualizations and really nice descriptions. Uh, the second book is uh, with uh, Sylvain Gugger. Uh, Sylvain, uh, some of your listeners may recognize as being uh, an exceptional student from an earlier course who repeatedly wrote brilliant material that I featured in the course. And since then, he's gone on to do some really cool uh, research around transfer learning. And um, AWS were kind enough to actually sponsor him as the first fast AI scholar in residence. So he's been working full time with us for um, most of this year. Uh, and uh, he's going to help me write a book about um, uh, the fast AI deep learning library and uh, learning deep learning uh, using the fast.ai uh, top-down approach. So that one's going to be coming out, uh, published by O'Reilly sometime in 2019. Oh, awesome, awesome. Related to your own evolution in this space and what you've seen from Sylvain, I'm sure you've been asked, like, you know, for folks that are, are interested in this field, don't want to get a PhD, but want to contribute to research. Do you have a kind of a path that you... Uh, point folks down? Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, so Sylvain would be a great example of that. He, um, uh, his background is pure math. Uh, so minimal computer science. Uh, he's actually visiting us uh, in San Francisco this week. So I've just been chatting to him about this. Um, and he was telling me, yeah, he's been doing deep learning for less than a year. And he thinks his, his story of kind of going from a pure math, minimal computer science background to contributing to the fast AI library and doing, you know, well-regarded research um, is kind of a good example of how people, yeah, it doesn't have to take a long time. You don't have to have some kind of formal background. Um, I think, you know, all it needs is um, tenacity. Uh, I think it requires strong coding chops. And so, you know, Sylvain has been working very hard to become a better coder. Um, uh, because then you can, you know, run lots of experiments. Every time you come up with an idea, you can try it out. Uh, and then just, you know, start writing. Start writing simple little blog posts. Like just pick pick something that you've seen come out where somebody maybe um, uh, give me a, give you a simple example. Um, ULM fit came out showing good results on English classification. So. If you speak French, why not try it on French classification? And, you know, that's a simple piece of research. And you can write a blog post or you could write a PDF or put it on archive showing your results on French. And then maybe you could say, oh, well, now that I've done French classification, let's also try sequence to sequence or let's try sequence labeling. You know, just, you know, little extensions. And you'll be pretty surprised that as you kind of like keep publishing little extensions to something that you like, uh, pretty quickly you'll find that, um, you've somehow become uh, more of an expert on that particular area than anybody else, and people start coming to you for advice, and you can start suddenly realizing, oh, you know, when Jeremy and Sebastian did that paper, they never tried this other technique. So maybe it'd be like, oh, they didn't, they didn't try using a transformer model. Maybe I should try a transformer model instead of an LSTM. Let's try that. And so, you know, just keep digging, keep trying things. Um, I'd say try to be as practical and useful as possible. Don't get too lost in the math. Um, and then, yeah, if you start coming up with some things that 
start showing good results. Um, you can reach out to other people who have been doing work in that field and say, you know, here's my results, here's my code. Um, what do you think? And if they think it's good, you know, maybe you can start uh, doing some collaborative research with with other people, um, which is exactly how Sebastian and I ended up doing some work together. And nowadays, Leslie Smith and I, uh, you know, talking about collaborating. Um, you know, yeah, it's all about doing doing useful work in 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 a field and uh, and getting to know some of the other folks that are doing that kind of work too. Hmm. Leslie, we know from the work on uh, cyclical learning rates that was featured in the library, right? Yeah, and uh, the learning rate finder, and more recently the one cycle schedule that's going to be kind of the main featured training method in uh, FastAI version one. Um, and perhaps most importantly, the superconvergence phenomenon that we're finding we can train things five to ten times faster than we were um, before he discovered that. Hmm. Well, that sounds like another conversation, maybe one that I'll need to have with uh, with him. Uh, yeah. But for now, Jeremy, thank you so much once again for Thanks, taking the time to chat with me. It was uh, really great having you on the show. My pleasure. And I hope folks, uh, um, you know, if people are interested in the FastAI library, if you just go to docs.fast.ai, um, you'll find all the information to get started there and um, come to our forums and tell us, tell us how you go. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sam. Bye-bye. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Jeremy or any of the topics covered in this show, visit twimmelai.com slash talk slash 186. You'll find there a link to the FastAI library and the new Fast.ai courses as well. To join our community of machine learning enthusiasts, including our study groups for the Fast.ai courses, visit twimmelai.com slash meetup. If you're a fan of the podcast and you haven't already done so, or you're a new listener and you like what you hear, head to your Apple or Google podcast app and leave us a five-star rating and review. Your reviews help inspire us to create more and better content and they help new listeners find the show. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.